Hey there! Are you a crime scene investigator, law enforcement officer, or forensic scientist looking for a Facebook community that understands you? Check out Taction USA's forensic product groups. You'll find blogs, articles, information, and community. For those of us in the investigative field, there are not many lines of support out there, but Taction USA is a company that was founded by law enforcement for law enforcement. Subscribe today to get access to exclusive content. Just look for Taction USA in Facebook groups. the tape a true crime podcast from another planet maybe <laughs> i'm your host one of them brendan and i'm hillary the other host yes <laughs> please sign the crime scene log and join us for something a little bit different hooray <laughs> we as you as your our regular listeners know we normally cover murders and you know, those kind of dark things. Mean, nasty, awful things. <laughs> we have covered heists, but today we're actually covering an arson case, a very large one. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little bit different, and this will be part one of two of The Misguided Deeds of Mr. Flair. According to a New York Times article from June of 1982, Boston, Massachusetts, also known as the hub of the universe, was quickly becoming the hub of arson. There was concern at the time that there were too few firefighters to cover the outbreak of fires, and in the decade prior, Bostonians had already suffered through several incidents which would put any on edge at the mere sight of a speeding fire truck and the sound of a screaming siren passing by. In June of 1972, the 100-year-old Hotel Vendum was undergoing significant renovations when a fire broke out. The construction workers noticed the flames and fled the building safely, calling in the Boston Fire Department to handle the blaze. It took only two hours to put the fire out, but while wrapping up their efforts, 25 firefighters were trapped when the building partially collapsed. The fire, the weight of the tons of water pumped into the building, and the structural changes from the renovation were all to blame. While most of the firefighters were rescued, in June of 1975, a trash fire behind an apartment building resulted in the building catching trapping 19-year-old Diana Bryant and her niece, 2-year-old Tara Jones, on the top floor fire escape. A firefighter made his way to the roof and hopped down on the fire escape to assist Bryant and Jones as the ladder was extended up to them. Just as the ladder was within reach, the fire escape collapsed. The fireman was able to cling to the ladder with one hand, but Bryant and Jones had fell to the street below. Bryant suffered fatal injuries, but Tara Jones survived her fall, which was cushioned by landing on top of her godmother. A photo of the collapse and the woman falling won a Pulitzer Prize and was published by newspapers and fire safety advocates across the U.S. to push for inspections of fire escapes. And the, uh, you know... The, the photo, if you haven't seen it, brace yourself if you're going to look it up. Right. But it's nuts. Right. It's really... Something to behold, and I can't imagine that being right. published all over the place these days. And to to be clear, we're covering, we're giving you a little history of what Boston experienced before we delve into the case. Yes. 
In March of 1979, seven individual fires were set in the Copley Plaza Hotel. That's a nice hotel. Mm -hmm. And six were set in the Boston Sheraton Hotel. Also a nice one. I was going to say, never been, but sounds nice. They are nice. On the same night, just an hour apart, it was later discovered an 18-year-old busboy who had been fired from both hotels was responsible. Son of a gun. The entire third floor of the Copley Plaza was wiped out, as well as a restaurant in the Sheraton. 2,000 people had to flee into the streets as guests were pulled from windows and off of ledges. Dozens were injured and two people died as a result of their injuries. The bus boy was arrested before he was able to flee New York on a bus. But these three examples, as you can see, why the good people of Beantown would have strongly and have a collective anxiety every time fires would ring out. Luckily, they knew they could rely on their first responders from Boston Fire and Boston PD to protect them from these tragedies. But from 1982 to 1984, the greater Boston area experienced well over 200 fires, the vast majority of which were determined to have been caused intentionally. Since the method of each arson was similar, it was quickly decided these were the work of a serial arsonist. However, the motive for the fires ran much deeper than anyone could have ever expected and all the way to City Hall, and the identity of the culprit or culprits shocked the citizens of Boston. This is a story of public safety, public distrust, and fire. But before we dive into the case, let's hear from the good folks at the National Investigative Training Academy. If you are looking for a career change or to expand your knowledge in an already established one, look no further than the National Investigative Training Academy. The National Investigative Training Academy, or NIDA, N-I-T-A, has well over 100 courses with 70 professional development ones alone. NIDA is constantly adding to their course catalog, and courses are focused on private investigation and security fields. Whether you would like to become a private investigator or you need continuing education for your investigative or security career, the National Investigative Training Academy is for you. All courses offered are 100% online and do at your own pace. Once completed, you will receive a certificate in that course. Sign up today at investigativeacademy.com. Make sure when you sign up for your courses, you mention we sent you there. We encourage you to get the best investigative and security training possible today. When you sign up, mention our brand ambassador code BA2367. That's BA2367. And you can find those courses at investigativeacademy.com. Look for links in our show notes as well. In 1980, voters in the state of Massachusetts passed a proposition called Two and a Half, which that placed a 2.5% cap on tax revenue that could be raised within a community. This led to a property tax ceiling, which would leave most cities with barely enough to cover the budget to pay their employees. These budget cuts sadly caused first responders to take most of the hit and 650 police officers and 550 firefighters were fired through no fault of their own. The departments chose those who would be laid off using the last-to-be-hired-going-first method, meaning if you were new to the force, you were among the first to be let go. However, it seemed that mostly non-white employees were let go. This was thanks to recent initiatives to diversify the police and fire departments, and thus the most recent hires who were soon to be fired were mainly people from minority groups. Yikes. Yeah. So it just doesn't look good. No. The U.S. District Court stepped in to prevent the mass firing of minority hires, which in turn shifted the focus of the firings to many of the longer-tenured officers and firefighters, 
As the fight to keep their jobs continued into 1981, the first responders were getting desperate and the layoffs kept coming. A law passed in 1982 that allowed the state of Massachusetts to set aside state funds to bolster Boston, Boston's public safety budget. This injection of funding made it possible to reinstate many of the cops and firefighters who lost their jobs, but it would take time to roll out this solution and reverse the layoffs. Before this solution was reached, an entity which became known as Mr. Flair was so disgruntled by the situation, they decided to take matters into their own hands. If Boston thought they could survive with less cops and firemen, Mr. Flair planned to prove the city wrong. After all, if there were more calls for service, the city would need more first responders, right? Right. That's at least the thinking. Mm-hmm. But, Good theory. Right. Poor, poor plan, but kind of see what they're thinking. In December of 1981, more than 40 fires were reported in dumpsters around Boston's South End, all the work of Mr. Flair. Hmm? said, oh, the South End. Yeah. You don't know. No, but I've seen pictures. <laughs> You've heard. And <laughs> Mr. Flair also broke a few windows along the way, perhaps to create a demand for more police, or perhaps for fun, we will never know. The trash fires were handled without much incident, and weren't quite enough to cause an uproar from the community. But in 1982, Mr. Flair decided to go up and guarantee support for the local firefighters by creating a device known as a La Bamba. But did he actually make it? Well, we, uh, we'll discover later who it's attributed to. I don't know. I don't know if La Bamba, I think that's a name given to a lot of yeah. Similar devices, but the one in this particular case. Right. We do find out exactly who right. was the mastermind. So, to explain, and we'll get more into it later, but the La Bamba was a makeshift incendiary grenade compromised of a plastic bag filled with lantern fuel. The plastic bag was placed in a paper bag, which was stuffed with rags. The fuse was a matchbox with a cigarette stuffed through it. The cigarette was then lit and set inside the paper bag, and once the cigarette burned down to the matchbook, the matches would ignite, lighting the tissues and paper bag. This flame would then melt through the plastic bag and ignite the lantern fuel, which would pour across the targeted area as it burned. Using La Bamba, Mr. Flair got to work. Fires were started in a vacant, in vacant buildings, including houses, churches, factories, and a lumberyard. And most of the fires were set in the areas of Boston, of Dorchester, Roxbury, Jamaica Plain, which are all part of the greater Boston area, as well as the South End. The South End. <laughs> Just wait till we go there. Oh, wait. They were, also set, they were also set mostly in non-white areas. Eventually, the Boston Globe reported that a local television station received a lit- written letter, quote-unquote written, it was more in true ransom fashion, meaning it was cut out from, you know, letters cut out from magazines and, you know, glued to a paper. Right. The letter said, I am Mr. Flair. You know me as the Friday Firebug. I will continue till all deactivated police and fire equipment is brought back. With that letter, Mr. Flair had revealed himself to the world, but the true identity of the Firebug wouldn't come, become known until 1984. So it kind of gives you a hint of who might be behind the fires. Yeah, strange that some random arsonist would just 
Right. I'm going to burn things, but I'll stop. Right. If the cops and firefighters get all their stuff back and the yeah. budget and their jobs. Right. So it, it's... Surely it's just Joe Citizen who's concerned for yeah. the jobs of his first responders. I don't know. Hmm. But with that, we must leave you until next time where you'll hear the conclusion and the identity of Mr. Flair. We thank you for joining us. Sign the crime scene log on your way out. Please. <laughs> we need it for court, please. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening. So long. Stay safe.